Good morning. As Bill said, my name is Ian Hammond, and I am your campus minister, your RUF International Campus Minister at Northwestern University on the North Shore of Chicago. I'm there with my wife, Hannah, who many of you know, and we are there welcoming international students with biblical hospitality, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, and equipping kingdom ambassadors. I was told I could give a a brief update before the sermon. We are uh, six years in to our ministry there at Northwestern, and we still believe in the strategic value of this ministry. There are over 6,000 students or international students in the community there. They come from around 100 countries. Uh, What the Lord Jesus said that... um, that there will be many from the east and the west that come to recline at table with Abraham in the kingdom of heaven. It is happening, and it is a great joy to take part in the mission that Jesus gave to us, his church. At our weekly dinner and Bible study, we have students from Saudi Arabia, China, India, Nigeria, Iran, Mexico, and Vietnam, all studying the scriptures together. About a month ago, I met a, a, a young man. Well, I guess, actually, he's older than me. I met a professor from Brazil named Diego. He was at our English club, and about after a couple of meetings, I asked if he wanted to get a cup of coffee. And at our first meeting together, one of the first things he said to me, he said, Ian, I need the peace of God in my life. I need to figure this Bible thing out. And I said, well, you know, I have been sent to this campus to help you do just that. We've been studying the Bible, uh, both the Old and New Testament, the last few weeks to see how everything is summed up in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is both the Messiah and the very Son of God. Hannah, my wife, saw a need on campus. When international students come to the grad school at Northwestern, many times they bring their spouses, bring their wives with them. And because of their visa status, um, they can't work and they can't even study, so they have a lot of free time. And some of them get very lonely. So Hannah said, you know what, we need to start a wives' gathering. And so we started this, and around 15 women have participated in this wives' gathering. And one wife said uh, that she, after the first meeting, she said to Hannah, I am so thankful for this group. I have not left my apartment in over a month. Um, Probably the biggest update I have to share is that we're moving we're moving from a condo that we've been living in about two miles from campus, and the Lord has used this place in some beautiful ways. We have had countless international students, countless meals together, countless Bible studies, and uh, on Thanksgiving, I said this in Sunday school, we move furniture out of the way and we squeeze as many international students as possible into our living room. Um, we have sat on our living room couch and prayed with and sometimes cried with international students as they have counted the cost of following Jesus. But in God's providence, what will be, what was two miles will come a hundred yards and what was a condo is going to become a house. Grace Prez saw an opportunity to purchase a house across from campus and they're letting us rent this house from them. So we are thrilled about moving practically onto campus. This means that students no longer have to take a bus, whether snow or sunshine, to come to our house for our dinners together. They can walk out of their lab and be at our house in a matter of seconds. And so this means, however, 
that we need to raise support. Grace Prez very generously and sacrificially is going to be renting us this new house across from campus for half the cost of owning it. But we need to raise about $1,000 in new monthly support. And so if you are interested in supporting us in this way, and we'd love, you know, if the Lord leads you to support us in this way, we have a card with us that shares how to give. I put some back there where you uh, found the worship guides. And also, if you're just not on our supporter newsletter, we'd love to get your contact information to add you to our support team. Lastly, I just want to say uh, thank you so much for your partnership in the gospel. Uh, Honestly, without you, I don't believe this work at Northwestern would be possible. So thank you so much. You have been just tremendous partners to Hannah and me. All right. This morning, we are in the letter to the Romans. Uh, One pastor has called this the greatest letter ever written. And I, I think I agree But I bet the reason that he says this and the reason that many people say the book of Romans is their their favorite book is due to what comes in the first two-thirds of the book. Well, we find ourselves this morning in the last third of the book. In our passage this morning, we are in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3 all the way through 21. And what we have here in this selection is basically 30 commands from the Apostle Paul. Now, it's important to forget or not to forget all that has come before this in this book. This is not Paul's prior Pharisaic legalism cropping back up in his apostolic mission. No, what we have here in the verses we're about to read is an invitation. It's an invitation to live a life transformed by the power of the gospel. And so with that in mind, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Uh, Let's pray before we read God's word together. Father in heaven, we come to you now and we ask that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts to see beautiful things in your word, to see the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory and beauty exalted before us. We ask that you would give to us your Holy Spirit to give us a saving understanding of the things we're about to consider. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, this is God's word. For by grace, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness." Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality." 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil. But give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God remains forever. Amen. I remember the first time that I heard Rosaria Butterfield's conversion story. It's an extraordinary story, which is why I remember it, and maybe some of you know the story as well. But what was so inspirational to me at the time that I heard this as an aspiring pastor were the figures of Pastor Ken and his wife, Floyd. When Rosaria first met Ken and Floyd, she was a professor at Syracuse University, and the way she described herself was that of a radical leftist professor in a committed lesbian relationship who had an entirely negative view of evangelical Christians. In fact, she had such a negative view that after she published a book aimed at tenure, she turned her academic guns towards evangelicals, and at the one book she believed had gotten everyone off track, the Bible. And so her first offensive came in an article she published in the local newspaper, and this article generated lots of responses. So many responses that she had two boxes on either side of her desk, one for fan mail and one for hate mail. And as she dug through those letters, there was one letter that kind of defied her filing system. It was the letter from Pastor Ken of Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquisitive letter. He invited her to explore several questions, questions that an English professor could appreciate. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know that you're right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with her article he instead invited her to defend the beliefs that lay behind it. And so she didn't know how to respond to this letter, so she threw it in the trash. But later in the night, she dug it back out because Ken had invited her to dinner. And she decided that she was gonna go. But she had a clear motive in mind. She said, surely this will provide great data for my research against evangelicals. But Ken and Floyd defied her expectation of Christians, which were largely based on like protests at gay pride events or uh, people she saw on the TV talking about politics. They actually became friends. Ken and Floyd entered her world. They met people in her orbit. They, they spoke openly about controversial topics. They did book exchanges. And for two years, Ken and Floyd brought the church to Rosario when she would not have gone into a church. Um, when they ate together, Ken prayed. And his prayers were intimate and vulnerable. He confessed sin. He thanked God for things. Ken's God was holy and firm. 
yet full of mercy and grace. On her own initiative, she began going to visiting Ken's church. She continued to read the Bible. And in her own words, then on one ordinary day, I came to Jesus. Open-handed and naked. Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church was there. Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. Train wreck was, a conversion was a train wreck for me. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. I weakly believed that if Jesus, Jesus could conquer death, he could, he could make my life right as well. I drank tentatively at first of the solace of the Holy Spirit and then passionately. I rested in private peace and then in community and then in a covenant home where one calls me wife and another calls me mother. I have never met Ken nor Floyd, but I have counted them as role models for the Christian ministry. What does it look like to take the first two-thirds of Romans seriously and also the last third as well? To borrow, verses, some, to borrow some phrases from the verses before our text, what does a life, a body offered to God and a mind renewed by God look like in practice? In other words, what difference does the gospel make? Well, what we'll see this morning is that the gospel doesn't make a difference. It makes a big difference. The gospel changes things. It changes the way we relate to ourselves, the way we relate to our gifts and to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and yes, even the way we relate to our enemies. And so I want to look at these four changes that the gospel brings this morning, ourselves, our gifts, our brothers and sisters, and our enemies. Let's look at this first point. We'll spend the most time on this one. The first, first, the gospel changes the way we relate to ourselves. In C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he has a, a, a chapter titled, The Great Sin. And in this chapter, he makes a defense or he makes an argument that the greatest of all sins is pride. He says, pride is essentially competitive, while other vices are competitive only by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having it more than the next person. You know, we say that people are proud of being rich or intelligent or attractive, but they are not. They're proud of being richer or more intelligent or more attractive than others. It's the comparison that makes us proud. It's the pleasure of being above the rest. He further adds, it is pride that has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. You know, other vices can sometimes bring people together. You can have good jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people, but pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And you know, it not only brings enmity between fellow human beings, it makes communion with God impossible. C.S. Lewis continues, if you come up in God, you come up against something that is immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that, and yourself by nothing is in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on people and on things. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see 
what is above you. And so, it is no coincidence that at the beginning of Paul's consideration of a life transformed by the gospel, he takes aim at pride. Pride is destructive to fellowship, and to be a Christian, we see in verses four and five, means that you are a member of a body composed of many parts who collectively are one body in Christ Jesus. And so if we're going to live this life together in fellowship, we need to change the way we relate to our very selves. Paul writes in verse three that we ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Now it's important to know that you can think of, uh, thinking too highly of oneself can come in two forms. You know, on the one hand, it looks like delusional arrogance. On the other hand, it looks like a delusional self-pity. You know, this is the coin of pride, the two sides of the coin of pride. You know, pride, when you feel like you're doing well, looks like an inflated sense of self-importance. Pride, when you feel like you're doing poorly, looks like a, a defeated self-pity. And the common thread that, that join these, joins these two states is a, a preoccupation with the self. Pride can look like the man who cannot stop talking about his accomplishments. Pride can also look like the man who cannot stop talking about his failures or the fact that he's not getting the recognition or opportunities that he deserves. Both forms of pride lead us to assume that people are thinking or talking or worrying about us more than they actually are. Both forms of pride tend to suck the air out of a room and make every conversation revolve around oneself. And both versions of pride make us completely miserable. Because pride is ultimately the fruit of idolatry. It is basing one's ultimate self-worth, ultimate significance, ultimate status in, in something other than God. And so it may be beauty. And so when you look at yourself in the mirror and you feel beautiful, you are golden. But if you don't feel beautiful, you are trash. It may be success. And when you look and see that you're successful, you are the master of the universe. But if you're not so successful, you didn't have a good quarter, you're a loser. And the frightening thing about pride we see in our text this morning is that our very religious life, our knowledge, our giftedness, our righteousness, our service can be used as a means of building self up and looking down on others. And so all of this means that the solution of thinking too highly of oneself can't not just be think more lowly. No, Paul says in verse three, we are to think with sober judgment. You know, in order to give yourself an assessment in almost any area, you have to have a measure of, give yourself a self-assessment, you have to have a measure of detachment. You must kind of relativize that importance in that area in order to see yourself objectively because if all that matters to you is that you're a good mother, for example, when you look in the mirror, you'll either see the greatest mother who ever lived or we will see the worst mother. What you will not be is sober-minded. Sober-mindedness gives us the ability to see ourselves ac 
accurately. It, it lowers the stakes. It helps us to grow. It helps us see the good and where we need to grow. You know, it doesn't even necessarily mean you'll think less of yourself. But it does mean you're going to think of yourself less. Now, doesn't that sound wonderful? Freedom from the vicious high, highs and lows of life. Freedom to look at yourself soberly. Freedom to grow. How do we get there? Well, the secret is humility, and the secret of humility comes at the end of verse 3 in this little phrase, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, this translation here in the ESV is a good one, but I think the New American Standard Bible says it a little more clearly. It says this, as God has assigned to each a measure of faith. And so our command in verse 3 would read this way, think with sober judgment as God has assigned to each a measure of faith. Now, this is Paul's point. Recognizing that God has assigned to each a measure of faith is a barricade against pride. And this is the case for three reasons. Firstly, by saying that we should judge ourselves by a measure of faith, Paul turns pride upside down. What is faith? Faith is in essence, is recognizing your complete and unqualified dependence upon God. Faith is an expression, it is a confession of your complete insufficiency before God. And so by making faith the metric by which we judge ourselves, Paul is functionally saying this, judge yourself by how much you see your need of Christ Jesus. This is why Jesus in the gospel says this, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Greatness in the kingdom of God does not, lo does not look like a strength that you boast in. It looks like the weakness of a child. And so Paul is inviting us here to boasting in our weakness. We are to boast in the fact that we have nothing in and of ourselves to boast about before God. In this way, Paul turns pride upside down and invites us and opens us up to look at ourselves from whatever angle, angle soberly. We can look at ourselves soberly because this means that we are not ultimately judged on how good or gifted we are in any arena of life. We simply ask, do I trust Jesus? Is Jesus my only hope in life and death? Do I trust him? And if you do, the most important judgment is settled. You are fully and finally judged righteous in the Son. And if this is true, and if this is true, all those other assessments become a little less important. Secondly, by making clear that the reason we have faith is due to God, he makes thinking too highly of oneself ridiculous. Faith is a gift from God. It has been assigned or given out by God's grace. It is not earned or self-generated. So it bears no reflection upon your great ability or your great moral excellence. Paul says this argument in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Boasting in your faith is like boasting that you have 
air in your lungs. You did nothing to obtain oxygen other than to breathe it in. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, Paul draws our attention to the fact that you are not the only one to whom God has assigned faith. God has assigned to each a measure of faith. You know, pride in essence is the belief that you are something special. Life would not work if you were not at your best. You know, this is, by the way, why we too often see failures, great moral failings in leaders, both in and outside the church. You know, pride makes us believe that we are something special, and then it leads us to conclude that the rules and the consequences ought not to apply to us. I shouldn't have to face consequences because the kingdom of God, what we're doing here is going to fall apart without me. Pride also causes us to look at service in a very worldly way. We think, if I am not center stage, I am not important. This is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches about the church. The church is a body formed of members who have different functions, but who are all essential to the proper functioning of the body. And so in these verses, Paul completely reshapes our relationship to self. He says the most important thing about us is our faith in Christ, that this faith is a gift from God and it is given to the entire body of believers. You see, the gospel of grace through faith frees us. It frees us from debilitating self-pity on the one hand and destructive arrogance on the other. It brings us low, showing us that every good thing we have comes from God. It brings us high, showing us that every good thing we have comes from a God who loves us so much that not only does he give us his son, but he gives us the very faith to receive him. All right, point two, the gospel changes our relationship to our gifts. The other day I was talking with someone about ministry, and there's something that's so common that I think we miss its significance. What does Paul not say in verse six? He doesn't say, since we have talents that differ. He doesn't say talents. He says gifts. Talents sound like something innate or created by you. The Bible reframes our talents as gifts. Gifts are abilities given by God, exercised by faith in God for the good of the people of God. And Paul teaches that in verse, in verse six, that everyone has gifts and we must use them. You know, the ideal church isn't one where you have like this awesome staff, this expert staff that does all the work efficiently and effectively and excellently. No, the ideal church is one in which we all come together as members of the body and use our unique gifts for the good of one another. Now, this list that Paul gives in verses six through eight, it's not an exhaustive list. There are other lists in the New Testament that differ. Um, but the gifts included here basically fall into two categories. You have word gifts and you have deed gifts. Paul has in here these two patterns of gifts. And this fits what we see in the gospels. Jesus served in word and deed and so is the church to do so after him. Now, we all share in these gifts in some measure, but to those to whom God has given a greater measure in any particular area, we are called to devote ourselves to that area. 
Recall what happened in Acts chapter 6. The Jerusalem church was prospering. It grew, and a matter of controversy arose among the members there about the distribution of goods to the widows. And so what did the church do? Well, they summoned the apostles to come settle this matter of dispute. And how did the apostles respond? Brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of spirit and of, the wis- and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, this was in no way to denigrate deed ministry, but they recognized that they had a special role to play, ministry of the word and of prayer. And so they invited the church to pick out men from among them to take some responsibility in this area. And so, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you have gifts from God. No one is giftless. No one is meant to be a mere spectator in the life of the church. You may have word gifts. You may have deed gifts. I don't know which kind of gifts you have, but you're called to use them. And it may not be in a formal capacity. It could be a formal or informal capacity. You may need to volunteer with the youth, uh, imparting wisdom to the upcoming generation. You may need to volunteer in the children's ministry and pass on those vital stories of the faith. You may need to reach out to a struggling small group uh, member to listen, to pray, to hope together. Perhaps you need to volunteer in the outreach or mercy ministry of the church, or maybe you need to use the great resources that God has given you to serve the church in a greater way than ever before. Maybe you need to lead in welcoming of new visitors and setting up and taking down after church meetings. You may need to serve on a committee to provide some administrative relief to pastors. Or maybe, just maybe, the Lord is calling you to leave, to be sent out by this church to bring the gospel elsewhere. The church in the U.S. needs pastors. The world needs missionaries. I don't know what the Lord is calling you to do, but I know he calls you to serve. For Jesus, when he came, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, point three, the gospel changes how we relate to our brothers and sisters. Paul teaches in verses nine through 13 that we are to love our brothers and sisters genuinely, zealously, and aggressively. Our love is to be genuine in that that it's to be true and it's to be done with gentleness. Maybe more than any other Christian doctrine, the doctrine of love is most misunderstood in this polarized age. You know, on one side of the spectrum, you have love that is understood as all gentleness and no truth. And on the other side, you have it understood as all truth and no gentleness. Love that is all gentleness and no truth kind of makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside. It it comforts us, but it keeps us blind to, to our sins that destroy our lives and the lives of others. Love that is all truth and no gentleness tells us how it is, but not in a way that we can accept it. We feel attacked and and thus rendered incapable of change. But love that is gentle and true has the capacity to change us, 
to empower us. This is the love of God who, who tells us the truth about ourselves but moves towards us in mercy and grace. Our love is to be zealous. You know, there is an element of competition in the body of Christ, but it's not the competition of getting honor. It's the competition of giving honor. Verse 10, we are to outdo one another in showing honor. We move toward one another, not expecting that others are gonna accommodate to us, but expecting that we are going to accommodate to others. Among other things, this means that we will be very difficult to offend. Being easily offended is an honor-seeking behavior. You are offended when you believe someone has stolen some honor from you. You know, the gospel turns us right upside down on its head and instead invites us to be more concerned about our neighbor's honor and less about our own. And is this not what Jesus Christ did for us? He who was equal to God humbled himself by making himself a servant and he became obedient even to the point of death and not just any death, death upon the cross the most shameful death in the ancient world. Jesus hung there, despising the shame, naked and exposed, so that we might be clothed with the honor of heaven. Brothers and sisters, we do not have to defend our honor. We have an honor that is indestructible, imperishable, and unfading. Our love is to be aggressively hospitable, that's an interesting combination of words, right? Aggressively hospitable. But I, you know, I put it this way because I saw something very interesting in, in the text. In verse 13, Paul says, seek to show hospitality. And then in verse 13, he says, bless those who persecute you. The word seek and the word persecute is the same word in the Greek. And I think the word hunt captures this meaning of both pretty well here. Hunt down opportunities to show hospitality and bless those who hunt you. The idea is this, do not wait for the obligation of hospitality to be thrusted upon you. Be active, not passive. When I decided to attend seminary near to Hannah, who was my girlfriend at the time and is now my wife, um, we decided that since we were serious about one another, we should start visiting churches together and find somewhere that we could worship together. And so one Sunday, we visited this, this small little church, St. Paul's Presbyterian Church. It was meeting in another church's building. Uh, it was much older than we thought we were looking for at the time, but the, uh, the preaching was spectacular. Uh, and we decided to become members there, but we didn't decide this because of the preaching. In fact, it was as if we didn't decide this at all because when we came that first Sunday to visit this church, we got invited by so many families for lunch in their homes that we could not say yes to everybody. So we kept having to come back to like uh, receive the hospitality that was being offered to us. And at first, if I'm honest, I mean, I told him, I'm like, I don't want to go visit these people. I don't know these people. And I wasn't super interested. But by the end of it, I wanted to learn from them. They, their faith seemed to have some substance to it. 
It was attractive. They took seriously the call to hospitality, and it was contagious. Now, if a hospitality culture is going to exist, you have to have the humility to occupy both roles, host and guests. You must be other-focused enough as the host to put yourself out there to make invites and place others' comforts above your own. You must also have the uh, humble enough to be on the receiving end of, of service. Practically, this means making and receiving invites, no matter how uncomfortable and inconvenient it is at, purse, at first. Because if you step out in faith, you will discover that the alienation that characterizes this age can be undone by the practice of holy hospitality. Remember Jesus when he came, he came eating and drinking with sinners just like us. All right, our fourth and final point is this. The gospel changes the way we relate to our enemies. Maybe the most distinctly Christian act that you can do is to love one's enemies. And this makes no sense at all apart from the central message of the Bible. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Why else would you bless those who cursed you other than the fact that Christ Jesus blessed us who cursed him? Why else would you not, why else would you not repay evil for evil other than the fact that Christ repaid our evil with good? The gospel completely reshapes our approach to enemies. It takes vengeance out of our hands and places it into the hands of the living God. Jesus opened not his mouth to curse because he had entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. The fact is, injustice may persist in this age, but justice in the end will win out. There will be a great day of judgment, and the wrongs that are done will be punished by God, either on the cross borne by his son or on the person who committed them. In verse 21, Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What does, it look to be like, what does it look like to be overcome by evil? Well, it looks like being consumed by the vicious cycle of returning evil for evil. Overcoming evil is done by responding to evil with good. It looks like putting your daggers down and entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. Will not the God of heaven and earth do right? He will. He did this for Jesus so that in him he could do it for you. The fact that Jesus died for our sins and rose for everlasting life changes things. The gospel changes things. The gospel changes the way we relate to ourselves, to our gifts, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and yes, even to our enemies. The gospel changes everything. Let us pray.